Well, good morning, Redemption. My name is Neil Pitchell, um, and uh, I have the privilege this morning of speaking to you on Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19, written by King David, describes in beautiful poetry how God communicates to people. C.S. Lewis said, it is the greatest poem in the Bible. The first section says that God speaks through nature, what we call general revelation. The second section says that God speaks through his word, the Bible. We call that special revelation. In other words, the, the knowledge of God comes to us in two volumes, nature and, and the Bible. And Psalm 19 teaches that we need both in order to know God personally as, as Father, as Savior, and as Lord. Now, the psalm breaks nicely into three sections, actually. Uh, first, God's revelation in his world. Second, God's revelation in his word. And then finally, how we, as God's people, respond to that revelation. Now, David is, is clearly moved by the greatness of God as he uses beautiful poetry and profound theology to communicate really important truth. In order for us to absorb the magnificence and the majesty of God as described in Psalm 19, I'm going to read the entire psalm first, and then we're going to go back and go verse by verse through the entire psalm, and I'm going to emphasize some of the important Hebrew words that are found throughout. So if you're able, would you stand as I read the Word of God? The words will be up on the screen as well. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It's rising from the end of the heavens, and it's circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The word of the Lord. Would you have a seat? So in that very first verse, that word declare means unveiling. It's to disclose something that was previously hidden. God chose to unveil 
his power and majesty to us. And the word implies a conscious decision. God's world is not a veil hiding his splendor and his glory. Instead, he chose to put his glory on display for all to see. And that word glory means weighty or important. One of the ways that God declares how important he is, is, is through his creation. And then in verse 2, he says, there's no pause to the evidence. Okay? We don't need a DVR to fast forward through the commercials in order to get to the good stuff. He says, day after day, night after night, the heavens pour out speech. Now, that, that Hebrew word pours out literally means bubbling up. It's like a natural spring that continually provides a supply of fresh water. And it doesn't end when the sun goes down. When night falls, the sky, the, the stars join in on the chorus. There's never a break in this great symphony of praise. Well, not only is, is God's glory constantly gushing forth from the universe like an open fire hydrant, but verses 3 and 4 say that it's, it's also comprehensive. God speaks in a universal language that reaches every corner of the globe. Verse 3 says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God's creation speaks in visual, unwritten words. So we don't even have to know how to read in order to grasp God's glory. In this highly visible age of Netflix and, and YouTube and every form of, of social media, we become incredibly visually dependent for our information. Yet, if we are honest, we as Christians, pretty much every day, we miss this amazing visual worship service. We just don't see it as we should. You have to wonder, how is that possible? Well, it's familiarity breeds contempt. We just don't see it the way we should. When Kate and I first moved to Gilbert, we bought a house on McQueen between Guadalupe and Baseline and didn't realize that there was a train um, that went through there every single morning at 2 and at 4 a.m. Um, we didn't sleep really well th those first week or so, but after a while, I didn't hear it anymore. It didn't bother me any longer. And that's what happens to us. We're surrounded day and night by this magnificent worship team led by the heavens and sky above, constantly declaring God's glory. So we as Christians, we need to slow down. And we need to join in on this praise chorus. And I believe that one of the ways that we can do it is when we pray. Because God is so worthy of our praise. When we pray, before we rush in with those heartfelt requests, we just stop. And if we're outside, we just need to look up. If we're inside, look out the window and be reminded and acknowledge just what a glorious God that we serve to keep from missing this glorious display of God's importance, our prayers need to start with him and his glory and his majesty. 
Now, if you're here today and, and by your own admission you would say that you're not a Christian, you might even not be sure that there is a God. Well, you need to know that because God has revealed himself through nature, every human being is responsible to respond to that revelation. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. General revelation reveals to all people God's creative power and greatness. Whether it's in the, in the splendor of a sunset or the, or the grandeur of a mountain range or even the simple beauty of a flower, all of creation is shouting that there's something more. General revelation is so clear and so obvious. No one, no one has an excuse to deny that there is a God. And, and just in case we're still a little bit fuzzy about it, David gives uh, one example of creation's manifestation of God's glory, and that is the sun. He starts in verse 4. He says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. And rising, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its sight. Rather than seeing the sun as, as a god or a deity like most ancient poets, David sees it as an example of God's display of power and strength. The sun, as, as it rises day after day after day and travels across our sky, giving light and heat to our planet, is just one example of nature's testimony that behind the universe is a planner and a designer with infinite power and majesty. This first section makes it abundantly clear that there is a God. But, but the next section says that we can't truly know this God without his word. So we can see the power and majesty of God simply by looking around at his creation. But we can't know him personally without his word. So in order to highlight the, the difference, in, in the first six verses, in this very first section, David only uses the name for God one time. And he uses the word El, which is kind of the general Hebrew word for God. El Shaddai, God Almighty. But when he switches gears in verse 7 to begin to speak about God's word, he uses God's personal name, Yahweh, six different times. Yahweh is the name that God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Yahweh is the name that God used to identify himself to Israel when he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai to give them his word. See, by changing in these verses from calling God El to God, calling God Yahweh, David is teaching that while the heavens reveal there is a glorious creator, it is the scriptures that reveal God as redeemer. So in this second section, in these next three verses, David gives us five synonyms for the word of God, followed by five adjectives and, and then five verbs 
And each one describes how God's word affects us, and, and it gives us an overall picture of, of the wonderful qualities of, of God's word. This glorious God who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word also speaks to us in law, testimonies, precepts, commandments, and laws. And these are the very words of God. So they are better for us than anything else we could watch. I got to calm down a little bit. Anything else that we can watch, we could listen to, or we can read. You know, Tim mentioned we, we have a, a great sale going on in the bookstore. And I encourage you to go over and, and buy a bunch of books. They're really good books. But ultimately, there's only one book over there that we can unequivocally recommend. And that is God's Word. That's the Bible. And every one of those words, law, testimonies, precepts, commandments, and rules, they imply authority. Okay? God's not making suggestions. He's not giving us hints on how he thinks we ought to give it a try. No, he is giving us authoritative word. And we need to not just be hearers of that word, but we need to be doers as well. So what I want to do is look at each one of those, those words and uh, uh, go through them thoroughly. So the first one is the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That word there for law is the Hebrew word Torah. Typically, that means the first five books of the Old Testament. But oftentimes, uh, when it's used, it also refers to the entire Old Testament scripture, and that's what it is doing here. And it says that this law is perfect, perfect. There are no mistakes there are no errors. There are no omissions. It is, it is totally and completely true, and it is complete. The Apostle Paul, speaking about the Word of God in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for a correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is perfect. It is totally true. And then he says it revives the soul. And that simply means that it gives life. The word of God brings life to dead hearts. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The word gives us life. But interestingly, that word reviving um, also can, can mean food that restores strength. It means it's our spiritual food. It, it nourishes our souls. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God's word gives us life, and it gives us strength. And then he says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony simply means instruction. Now that we have life, God's word tells us how to live. It, it's, our, it's our playbook. It's the instruction manual that God has given us. And that word simple, it, it doesn't mean foolish. It just means one that needs to learn. 
one that needs instruction. So God provides it for us, and he does so in this word. And then he says that it's sure. That means it doesn't change. It isn't variable. It, it doesn't change when our culture changes its mind about something. It's reliable, and it's dependable in every situation. So God's word gives us life, it gives us strength, and it gives us wisdom. And then in verse 8, it says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Uh, the word for precept usually means roadmap. It means that the word of God keeps us going in the right direction. I have a lousy sense of direction. I am very thankful for cell phones uh, and Google Maps and all of the others. But in the days before those, I was frequently lost, even here in Arizona. Uh, and when I would finally see the street sign that I was looking for to know that I was going the right way, what, what joy that brings. Oh, gosh. And here's the other thing. <clears throat> Being on the wrong track causes a lot of stress, too. Um, there's a great commercial. I think it's Geico or Tarzan and Jane are, are, are arguing as they swing across the jungle. And he says, it's what couples do. They argue about directions. That's what happens when we're, we're not going the right way, when we are off the right path. And, and David says that, that the word of God keeps us going in, in the right direction. And then he says it, it, it brings us joy. God's word is not a burden. God's word is not an anchor. It is a blessing. And what that means is that we can have joy even in the most challenging and difficult situations if we will follow the word of God. It's, it's what Tom Schrader means when he says, let what you know trump what you feel. In those difficult, challenging times when our feelings are trying to overwhelm us, if we can go back to the roadmap and stay on the right track, we can have joy even in that very difficult circumstance. And then he says, the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. That means in addition to life and strength and wisdom and joy, God's word gives us light so that we can see things the way they really are. When we look at ourselves and the world around us through the lens of this book, we see things clearly. Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Because it gives light, and because it's pure, it will never call evil good. It will never say that what is wrong is, is now right. Now, it, it doesn't ignore the, the fact of evil. In fact, this book is filled with stories of, of very flawed people, including David himself. But yet it will never, it will never make sin look good or, or look right. And then interestingly, in verse 9, David shifts to say, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord is clean. Uh, that, that word fear um, means it's a healthy fear. It, it's an awe. And it's a reverence for this glorious, majestic creator who has given us life and wisdom and strength and joy and light. 
And when we recognize who it is that we serve and what he has done for us, we can't help but be in absolute awe of him. And as we experience that awe, we begin to fall in love with him. And, and you know what, what Jesus said to his disciples in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, when he had gathered them in the upper room for his last words? These are important things that he has to say. He's going to the cross in hours. Three times in John, chapter 14, Jesus, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll obey my commands. You see, that healthy fear, that love, that leads to that love for God, will push us in the direction of obedience, joyfully following the roadmap that God has provided for us. And then he says that that fear is clean. In the Old Testament, the, the, that idea of clean refers to the ritual purity of the priests that was necessary for them to enter into God's service in the tabernacle or the temple. So, so what God is saying to us here is, in order, to, in order to honor him with our service, we need to enter that with awe, with reverence, with fear of who he is and love for him. And then our service to him will bring him great joy and great honor. Then he says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That, that simply means that, that God's word is the standard for righteousness. God's people do not have to wonder how to live in order to be right with their king. It's, it's, it's all right here. That word righteousness simply means being right with God. And we have the tool necessary to live in a way that is right with him. Now, interestingly, I found that in, in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, God gives a little bit of a commentary on Psalm 19. Isaiah 66, 2 says, All of these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. That's the first six verses. God's creation. I made it all. It's all there. It's all from me. And then here's what he says. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you see that? This magnificent creation. It reminds us of him, but we are to worship it. The one that he values is the one who sees and understands the value of God's word. And, and David very clearly recognized that value. Look at verse 10, back to Psalm 19. He says, it's more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And then at the end of verse 11, he says, there's great reward in keeping it. The word of God is invaluable. There was a group of us from the church that a few weeks ago went to Greece, and we saw some amazing things. But probably the most valuable thing we saw was in the city of Regina, uh, in the tomb of Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon is the father of Alexander the Great, and they found his tomb almost completely preserved. And inside, they found his crown made of absolute pure gold. You couldn't put a value on that for anything. It, it, it was so valuable. And, and David says that this word is even more valuable than gold, even much, much fine gold. David's point here is, is incredibly important. 
when we have a choice between trusting the word of God and, and getting more gold, even much fine gold, we need to choose the word of God. So that plays out maybe in business where you have an opportunity to, to close a deal by being less than honest. Um, maybe it's a big commission. David says, following the word is, is way, way more valuable. Don't do it. Don't do it. He says that the reward of knowing and obeying God's word far outweighs any financial reward, no matter how great it can be. I believe he's also saying that, that if, if our first thought every morning is, is to, to quickly jump online and check out uh, the stock market, how's our portfolio doing, what's our bank account look like, how are our investments doing, before we go to this word, we have things out of whack. We're like a kid who, who finds a nickel and a dime and decides to keep the nickel because it's bigger. We need to teach our kids what's more valuable. And what David is doing for us here is to say that this word is so much more valuable than anything else. And here's the really great thing. Usually what's really good for us, what's really valuable, tastes really bad. When did kale become a food? tastes so terrible, but it's good for you. But David says, no, no, this is valuable, and it's also sweeter than the honey, the honey from a honeycomb. When I was a kid, there was a, a, an ice cream store outside of Boston uh, called Putnam Pantry, and it was one of those places where you could make your own sundaes. Okay? This was not like the Froyo places today where you got non-fat, non-sugar yogurt covered with fruit, okay? This was creamy, rich ice cream with hot fudge and caramel and marshmallow and whipped cream and chocolate chips and sprinkles and everything else sweet that you could pour on top of it so that it was pouring off the side. And I'd walk around trying to catch it so I wouldn't lose one drop of that sweetness. That's what David says the word of God is. This valuable word is also sweet. It should be our greatest treasure and also our greatest pleasure. And, and because this law is so precious to David, his desire is that he would not disobey it in any way. But yet he knows without God's help, he, he just can't do it. So in verse 12, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David is saying, look, there are areas of my life where I need help. And what he's doing is he's praying for God's help before he has to pray for forgiveness. It's why Jesus, when teaching his disciples to pray, said, lead me not into temptation, not forgive me my sins. Of course, we're forgiven when we sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, he is, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Chuck Swindoll, in his book, The Grace Awakening, says, that's the hospital verse. That's for us when we fall off the cliff. When we have this word before us, this roadmap before us, it's the sign that says, slow down, danger. So David prays that God would prevent him in four areas of, of struggle in his life. The first is, he says, hidden faults. You're like, wait a minute, hidden faults? If they're hidden, how do I know what they are? Well, that's why God gives us a spouse. <laughs> 
Kate and I have been married 39 years. She's really good at, at finding those hidden faults, and she should be. And if you know what, if you're not married, you need to be in community with other believers who can help you see those areas of weakness in your life. And then what we need to do is we need to go back to God's word, back to the instruction manual. Okay, how do I deal with those areas of, of hidden faults? In fact, uh, Paul says in, in Philippians 2.16, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And then David says, I need to be kept from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are, are the sins of self-confidence. Those are the times when we feel like we can kind of go it alone without God. We don't typically say it this way, but usually what happens is we, we go ahead and make a plan or make a decision, and we start down the road from this great plan, and we get a little ways down, and we find it's not going exactly the way we thought. So we stop and say, Oh, um, God, will you sprinkle a little of that Holy Spirit dust on my plan so it works out the way that I want it to? David says, no, that's presumptuous. That's, that's going off on your own. That's self-confidence. Lord, I, I need help with those times where I think I can do this thing on my own. And the Bible says so clearly, apart from me, we, you can do nothing. So we need to be praying that God would keep us from those presumptuous sins. And, and, and David understands, too, that, that he's not going to get all the way there, that he'll never reach that perfection, but it's direction. He wants to be blameless. He wants to be innocent. And he knows that the way to get there is by prayer, by asking God for his power before he runs into that situation. And then he goes even a step further. He recognizes that it's not just in our actions where we need God's help and protection, but it's in our words and in our thoughts. Verse 14, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, it's not just what we do, but it's what we say and what we think. We need help from God. And this prayer is so important because what, keeping what we say pleasing to God is, is really hard. Uh, James, the, the brother of Jesus, said the tongue is a fire. It's, it's a world of unrighteousness. Have you had that experience where you've said something and you just want to reach out and grab those words and pull them back into your mouth? David's saying, before that happens, pray to God. That, that our words will be acceptable to God. And then he says, I, I got to go even a little bit deeper because it's what's going on in here that typically ends up coming out over here. So he prays that, that the meditations of his heart, his thought life would be acceptable to God. If, if what you say and controlling that is difficult, Controlling what you think and what goes on in here is even more difficult. So David lays out these areas where he asks God to protect him. What, what a great prayer life we could have if it starts with the glory of God every time recognizing and acknowledging who it is that we pray to. And then before we, we rush in with, with those truly heartfelt concerns and needs, which are totally legitimate, God says you don't ask because you don't have, 
But before we throw those out, to, provide, to ask God to provide us for protection from those hidden faults, those presumptuous sins, the words of our mouth and the thoughts of our heart. And then finally, David acknowledges exactly who it is he's praying to. He says that God is his rock and his redeemer. Uh, typically in the Old Testament, um, the, the word rock when describing God means that he's, he's our protector, he's a shield, he, he's a place of protection for us. But there are several times, including here, where it refers to God as creator. So what David is doing is he's referring back to those first six verses. God as this glorious, powerful, majestic, magnificent creator. And if he is that then he has all the power necessary to answer whatever prayers that we have to lay before him. You see, praying to God as our rock gives us confidence. Confidence that the God that we go to has the power and the ability to do exactly what we need. Now, he may not do what we need because it may not be best for us, but by acknowledging him as rock, we are recognizing his great power. And then finally, he says, Redeemer. Now, Redeemer, of course, refers to one who saves or redeems another by paying the necessary price. God can be known as rock through general revelation. All you got to do is look around. But he can only be known as Redeemer through his word. So just for a moment, back to those of you who are here who aren't really sure if, in fact, there is a God, I would encourage you to do two things when you leave here today is to uh, look outside and, and see the magnificence of this creation and know that it couldn't be here by accident, that there is a glorious creator. But also, there is one specific prayer, and it's only one prayer for you that matters. And that is, how can I know this rock, this creator as my redeemer? You see, because God loves you so very much that he provided us with the ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ. God became a man so that we might know him as redeemer. In the Gospel of John, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word is Jesus. He lived a perfect life and he paid the price at the cross of Calvary to rescue us, to redeem us from bondage to slavery and sin. He died in our place and received the punishment that we deserved. The judgment for our sins was laid upon him. God who made himself known through his world and through his word became a man so that he might rescue and redeem us. Would you believe that today? If you do, you will see this creator in a way that will allow you to understand the majesty and magnificence of this God. For the rest of us, Let's, let's just alter our prayer life just a little bit to start our prayers with him, to recognize our need for protection, and then go out into this dark and, and thirsty world 
as salt and light for our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself so clearly uh, in nature and in your word. Thank you, most importantly, for revealing yourself in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would recognize the incredible love, grace, and mercy that we receive in Christ and in him alone. I pray, Lord, that as a result, we'll go and be salt and light. In Jesus' name, amen.